In the wake of a worldwide pandemic and economic catastrophe, many of our friends and colleagues in the world of digital product design are fortunate to have kept their jobs, but there have also been many who weren't so lucky. So we thought it would be timely to bring you an expert who's been using a designer's mindset to help people reframe their approach to their careers. Bill Burnett, co-author of the best-selling book, Designing Your Life, has written a new book called Designing Your Work Life. Bill's been the executive director of the design program at Stanford for 13 years. He's also taught one of the most popular elective classes there, which his first book was named for him. He and his co-author, Dave Evans, have taken what they've learned from teaching and running workshops for adults in the midst of a career or life transition to come up with a framework for using tools like curiosity, reframing, radical collaboration, and a bias to action to transform your work life and find the best job for you. In this interview, we talk with Bill about how adapting a designer's mindset can help you through your current challenges if you're searching for work. We also chat about how grit and perseverance maps to happiness at work, and how setting aside some time for reflection can actually help you understand what changes you need to make to find a better job, which may even be right at your current company. Whether you're searching for a new job right now, or if you just want to improve your current situation at work, we think you're going to get a lot out of our conversation with Bill. Enjoy the episode. Bill Burnett, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Well, thanks for having me again, Eli. It's nice to be here. Very welcome. So, Bill, we just finished sending off the class of 2020, the product design class, and it was a you know, very bittersweet moment. It's this time in history which is pretty much unprecedented. As far as I know, Stanford has never had a situation where a graduating class doesn't have a graduation ceremony. The students, we've been teaching them remote for the past quarter and change. Yeah. Um, despite that, they did really great projects. But they're facing the situation now out in the world where employment's very patchy, can be very hard to come by. Yeah. And you just happened to write this book, um, along with your <laughs> co-author, Dave Evans, called Designing Your Work Life. I'm curious, just at the start, how do you think about your book helping both our students and people who have been out in the world for a little while in this current environment? Yeah, you know, I think in some ways it was bad timing for a book because although, you know, everybody talks about Amazon such a big big gorilla in the book market, they're 40% of the market, which is huge for one vendor. But all the other bookstores are closed. So so right now book sales are really really, you know, kind of a struggle and um I always love it when small bookstores like the one here in my neighborhood, Christopher's or over at the Museum of Craft and Design, which also sells the book. I love it when the small bookstores get to sell the book. But right now, it's just just uh, the online stuff. But we did the book with no idea that this was coming, but with a, with a real sense that there's a, a big gap in the world around work. When we finished the first book and it had done pretty well, our editor, the wonderful Vicki Wilson at Knopf said, hey, what's your, what other ideas do you have? And we said, well, maybe we should do something about work because that seems to be broken. And then maybe we could do another book on um, on retirement or encore careers because people are living longer and there's lots of people moving into that phase of life. She picked the book on work first because she just thought that was a bigger, more pressing problem. We started researching and it's crazy. I mean, Gallup does a nas- uh, an international poll and talks about people's uh, employees' engagement at work, what they call you know worker engagement. You can be actively engaged, actively disengaged, or just you know passively you know disengaged and. 68% of American workers are disengaged or actively disengaged at work. And we're like, wow. I mean, like almost 70% of the people get up every Monday morning and go, 
oh, crap, I got to go to work. And then as we started digging deeper, at any given time in the American workforce, 40% of the people working for you are looking for a job, actively looking for a job on the job. That's another statistic that says people are unhappy. And then the one that I loved, I think it's 20 or 25% of workers polled in the U.S. said they would give up their next raise if you would fire their boss. Literally 25% <laughs> of the people said, I will pay you to fire my boss. And that, by the way, included a whole bunch of bosses who would pay you to fire their boss. <laughs> and so we looked at these statistics and we did what designers do. We did the empathy step and we went out and we started talking to people. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's just not connecting the dots at work. They're not happy. They don't feel engaged. They don't feel that work is purposeful or meaningful for them. And as designers, when we see a problem like that, a big gap like that, we think oh, there, there's a place maybe we can apply our energy. And then... You know, the book came out. We were actually in New York City on February 25th. That's the official launch of the book, which was lucky. It had originally been scheduled for later, but it got pulled up for a variety of reasons. And so we were in New York. We did some media stuff. We did a bunch of things. I flew back on the 29th, and I think the 29th or the 30th, they had the first case of COVID in Scarsdale. And 10 days later, the city was shut down. So we got in and out You know, at a very wonderful time when New York was still functioning. But now we have the COVID crisis and now we have, you know, the racial crisis in this country and everything's just kind of messed up. But I think now even more than ever, you're going to need good tools to find a job or to keep the job you've got or to make the job you've got even more interesting because everything's going to change. We're working, as you mentioned, Eli and I teach together and our seniors just graduated or will graduate this weekend, just finished the class, the last class, it was a great class. And they did a great job. But in December, I remember having office hours with my students at my office when we were all on campus going, you guys are so lucky. You are graduating into the best job market I've ever seen for designers. Right? 2018, 2019, economy was booming. Everybody was hiring. All the big companies, lots of startups. I think we were short 20,000 engineers and designers in Silicon Valley or something at that point. And we had a program going with an amazing guy named Victor Sad, who runs a thing called the Experience Institute out of Chicago, but he was helping us at Stanford find, you know, kind of put together jobs and, and a job finding process for our students. Bang, COVID hits, and now I gotta say, this is the worst job market I have ever seen. And I've been through the dot-com crash with my students in the 2008, 2009 crash. This is just unprecedented. It's just bad almost everywhere. But the good news is it is quite, as you said, lumpy or irregular. Just had a student get a fantastic job at the ARVR team at Facebook. I had a student get a job at Google, a student get a job at Apple. We spoke personally to the head of design at IBM. And even though IBM is kind of, you know, on a hiring freeze and in some cases laying some people off, he's still looking for candidates for specific, very specific jobs and, and, and characteristics in, in IBM. So what we're finding is it's very lumpy. And now more than ever, you're going to need a really sophisticated job finding strategy. And our strategy has always been that as a designer, you start with empathy for yourself. What am I good at? What do I like to do? Empathy for the world. What does the world need? Just because you want to do it doesn't mean the world's going to pay you to do it, right? What does the world need? And when you can match those two things, you can make some progress and you match them by getting curious, talking to people and prototyping. So you get curious about where are the jobs now? I had 
two of my master's students, one had an offer at Airbnb, a great offer at Airbnb, one had a great offer at Lyft. Both companies had to rescind those offers. So they're back looking again, right? Even though they thought they had it solved. So what you have to do is you have to get curious, where are the jobs now? You know, design lives in reality. If you want a job, you know, at a hotel or a ride-sharing company, forget it. Those companies are rapidly going out of business. So get curious. Where are the jobs now? What are the things that I can do that those jobs need? And I find them by exercising my network, by getting curious and talking to people and then running little prototypes, little conversations with people about their careers and how they got to where they are and what's going on in their company. Because it's really through our networks that we find the jobs that are interesting for everybody, particularly for designers. You know, we're kind of particular about the what we put our creativity against. And so we want to find jobs that, like when you have it envision and the ability to kind of work in a creative mode with people who understand design, you're going to find that only now through networks because all the job boards are, are either empty or shut down. None of those jobs were real anyway, and they weren't the kinds of jobs you wanted. So our strategy, which we talked about in the first book and we really amplified in the second book, is even more important now because with such an uncertain field of play here, some places it's very rich and things are bubbling and they're looking for, they're looking for more designers. Uh, Long-term, and David Kelly said this in class today. David's the founder of the D-School and IDEO, and you know, I'm sure most of the people on this audience know who David is. He said, you know, short-term, it's going to be a little bit messy, but long-term, when people have to redesign almost everything from what is the hospitality experience, what is it like to go to a everything you know, from a five-star, you know, four-seasons resort in Bali to a, you know, a Motel 6 you know, on Highway 5. Everyone's going to have to reinvent every experience, and that means designers will be more important in the future than ever. And I think that's true. But the next few years will be pretty bumpy. So let's rewind to where you started us off about how work is broken for so many people and thinking about that Sunday evening moment of, crap, I've got to go back to work tomorrow. I'm disengaged. I'm not excited about that. You offered some great initial strategies there, but maybe you could help us understand through your research and then what you've seen with students. I know that students that I interact with these days, they're searching for meaning. They want to feel like they're doing meaningful work, and that feels like something that's generationally different from past generations. Where do people go wrong? How do they end up in careers where they do feel disengaged? They might start out feeling like this is exciting and I'm passionate about this, but yeah. something goes wrong along the way. Yeah, it was one of the things we dug into a lot is, all right, first of all, how do you figure out what you want? And you can use your own design process to do that and do information interviews, prototypes of, of various experiences. And a lot of our work now, when it's not on campus, is with sort of 30 and 40-somethings. And what they report to us is, hey, you know, I found this thing. It was pretty good for a while. But then something happened. Either my company did not continue to grow, and now I'm sort of stuck. There's a long line of people ahead of me for whatever the next step is, and I'm not willing to wait 10 years until everybody, uh, everybody else moves. So they're in a stagnant organization, or nowadays potentially in an organization that's actually collapsing or, or you know, sh shedding people. Or, and this was my experience at Apple, great company, I was there for just six years, totally engaged, loved the place, was there when we were inventing the, 
so the first version of a laptop, the modern laptop. And then, uh, you know, I had done 11 laptops, and by the time I came around to do the 12th one, there wasn't really an up, and there wasn't really a sideways to go, and I just thought, you know, I want to build something other than a personal computer. <laughs> well, they don't do that at Apple. I mean, you know, the, I, you know, I could have found other roles. I could have done other things inside the company. And we actually have four strategies. If you're inside a company and you like the company, but the job has kind of gotten stale, there are four ways you can reinvent or redesign that job. And, you know, we always say, we say, first of all, don't, don't resign, redesign, redesign in place, because there's so many ways you can find new things to do. But sometimes you just reach a point where you say, look, I said, I don't want to do personal computers anymore. Seven years was fantastic. We invented a whole category. We created billions, billions of dollars of new business for Apple. And then I wanted to try something else. And so there was nothing the company could do for me there. I needed a good leaving strategy. And we have a whole way to leave a company well, to quit well. And then I relied on my network of friends. And, and it turned out we ended up starting a consulting company together. And that was an exciting new adventure for me. So I think what happens is either the company stops growing or it changes. Oh, we got a bunch of stories in the, in the book where like, hey, I love my company. The guy working in an aerospace company down south, loved the company, got bought by a private equity firm. Of course, when the private equity firm buys your company, they say, we're not going to change anything. And then they, they immediately rip out the management and put in new management and change everything. That's uh, Richard Gere from Pretty Woman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Things can happen you can't control. Or you just outgrow the situation. And that's all normal. That's all natural. Designers know that when the design parameters change, when the circumstances change, the old solution doesn't work anymore. And now you need to design a new one. And that's okay. I think people do bail out too soon sometimes. So they don't, they don't look around the company for opportunities. And also we noticed that all of our work is based on research. We teach at Stanford Dave Evans and I, who write the books together and teach the classes, we're not allowed to just make stuff up. This isn't just, oh, Bill thinks you should try this. It's based on research, either from the positive psychology world, guys like Martin Seligman's model for how do you flourish and thrive as a human being, Chuck Mahai's model of flow, Dan Gilbert's model of choosing. We use a lot of psychology and proven research in order to say that if you try this, it'll work, because this is the statistics that says it works. But we also, in this book, we looked at kind of a new form of psychology. It's called social determination theory. And it's about people's intrinsic motivations. And we're, you know, humans are weird. There's a bunch of studies where, like, if you give people puzzles to solve, because people like to solve puzzles, they're curious and they like to solve problems. Curiosity is a natural drive of humans. If you take two teams and you say, just solve this puzzle, we'll time you. And you take another team and say, solve this puzzle, we'll time you, but we'll pay you 10 bucks if you solve it. The people you pay, actually do worse than the people who do it just for the love of doing it. And so there's a lot of research that says humans are intrinsically motivated around things like autonomy, like I want to I want to be able to figure out my path forward. What they call relatedness or just, you know, we're, we're a social animal. We need to work in groups of people. That's why this lockdown is so stressful for folks. And then competence. And I just flipped it around, and, you know, ARC, autonomy, relatedness, competence, is the arc of your career. You control your competence. You control how fast you learn and what you learn. You control how you interact with people and what, how, how you get energy from that. And you, for the most part, can control how you get your job done. Very few managers, even micromanagers, stand over you and tell you how to move your hands or 
what to type on the computer. So, so we went back to the research. We said, look, you have more control than you think. It's not your boss. It's you. <laughs> it's really you. And you get to redefine your job if you want to. A lot of times in ways the boss doesn't even have to be involved. You can just simply realign or redefine what your reason for working is. And there's lots of reasons for working. And it's not all about money, by the way. It's not, and it's not all about career advancements. In the old days, people just worked to have a, some money and put a roof over their head and send their kids to college. And they got their, they got their social and their other needs met in their church group or in their community or by volunteering to you know, run the soccer league or the baseball team. So it's a pretty modern idea that all the happiness comes from work. And we unpack that. And then we say, look, you can reframe the job and re-enlist. You can remodel it by just changing the things you do and getting rid of the things that you don't like to do. You can relocate, like change, take what you know how to do, but move from one side of the company to another. Find a guy that was like bored in finance, but he's good with numbers. And all of a sudden, the marketing team is doing this highly numeric social media marketing and social SEO scoring system. And he's like, I can do numbers. I can be in marketing moves over to marketing and bang, he's super excited and happy. And now he's driving engagement in the world with the company's products. He's connected in a whole new way. And that saves a company that so company much money. money. And it relies on the network you already have, the people who know right. you at work, who hopefully think reasonably of you. Sometimes you actually have to completely reinvent yourself. And you know that's great, but, but you do it, our model is do it in small steps. I mean, yeah, maybe I want to go get an MBA or maybe I want to, good finance degree, or maybe I want to, I really want to reinvest in myself and reinvent. But even then you can do it inside the context of your companies. Many companies, if you're a valuable employee, would even pay to do that. Or if they wouldn't pay to do it, would allow you to do it and then, and then give you a path to transition to something new. Although it's unlikely that you'll stay in the same company for a long time. Nowadays, the average is three to five years and people will have, researchers say people will have 35 jobs in three different careers. And maybe, but you can always reinvest in the thing you're doing, and that's where there's the most learning. The research says if you're always learning and you're and in the process, you're helping others, and in that process, you're increasing your competency, your mastery of your craft, you will be engaged in any job you pick. So I really love how that idea of autonomy related to competence, which also seems to share a lot with, and I know you, Dan, you know Dan Pink and yeah. It's his idea of mastery, autonomy, and purpose. I seem to yeah. share some yeah. parallels. He was, but he, you, was, he was drawing from the exact same research. In fact, yeah. Dan was the guy who put us on to Edward Dietschy and the guys who pioneered that psychology of intrinsic motivation. And I love in the book, too, where you connect that also to this idea of grit and perseverance, which seem to share a lot of the same qualities where you're, you know, you're practicing something, there's a purpose behind it, you have hope, there's enjoyment. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that idea of grit. Well, again, you know, um, what Picasso said, good artists copy, great artists steal. We're, we're stealing from the best. We're stealing from Angela Duckworth and her model of grit. Her model of grit, grit predicts success more than IQ, more than, you know, almost anything. It's just perseverance. You're working hard at something to master it with the hope that you'll get better, right? Grit predicts who's going to pass the horrible, you know, the, the worst sort of physical fitness tests in the military academies. Grit predicts who's going to be the best salesperson. Grit predicts a bunch of different things. And grit can be developed. If I have one gentle critique of the current generation, and really of the last two or three generations, is that I think because of the internet, because of the way things change so quickly, a lot of my students have become 
addicted to novelty over mastery. This is a very common, I get an email, hey, can I, you know, as Eli does with all of, we all, all on our teaching team do, we say, hey, you got office hours for life. Come back anytime and we'll help you, whatever the question is. And this is a very common office hour request. Hey, email, can I come and talk to you? I'm bored at my job and I want to, I don't want to change. And I won't give any names. So I had a student who came in and, and she said, yeah, I had this great job at Google and it was really fun. But I, after a couple of years, I got bored. So I quit. I went to Facebook, completely different job, crushed it. After a couple of years, I got bored. So I quit, went to this next thing, startup, different kind of thing. You know, I got really good at it. And they said, hey, would you do it again? So I did it twice. And they said, hey, would you do it again? I'm like, no, nah, I'm out of here. I said, what's going on? And she says, well, these jobs just aren't interesting. I said, no, 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 no. The common, the common pattern here, as you might notice, young person, is you. You get bored every time the job isn't novel. And that's fine, but what you're giving up is the ability to develop mastery. And this is what Duckworth is talking about, that the real satisfaction comes from getting gritty and getting down and dirty and yeah, I launched that one product. I was a project manager. I launched the product. But you know, if you really looked at it, it was a little lumpy and there was some mistakes made. I could get better. I could get better. And once I've mastered launching that one product, what if I built a product launch system that was bulletproof for the whole company? And if I did that, maybe I could you know, then build something so that everyone in the company would have a path to follow to get to a good outcome. So you don't get to those deeper levels of satisfaction if you just say, I want to do everything once because <laughs> uh, it's fun to be novel and uh, it's, it's fun to buy something new on the internet. And it's fun to always, you know, have a, you know, I, I went to Bali once, so now I, I don't want to go to Bali anymore. I'm going to go to Hawaii. Uh, I went to Hawaii once, so I don't want to go to Hawaii. I want to go to, you know, I'll go to, you know, Phuket. It's like, well, there's always another place to go, but you never meet the people and you never develop a sense of the culture there. So I think grit's important. Uh, we talk about uh, you know an open mindset, you know the growth mindset versus a closed mindset, and and the idea that you can develop. I think designers are naturally open mindset people, but you can develop an even more open mindset, and that's the sense that I, I you know there, yes, people have certain talents and stuff, but I can develop any talent with grit and an open mindset. Those are so important. I think. Going back to the very first thing, why are people disengaged? Well, to some extent, maybe they're in a crummy job. Or maybe the boss is kind of a micromanager or he or she doesn't really value developing employees. But that's giving all the power to the system. And you have more power than that. I mean, I've got a story about a shift supervisor at a fast food restaurant because we couldn't say McDonald's. You know, and that's a pretty prescribed job. There's rules and regulations and how you do it. And you're an hourly worker and you come in, you do your shift and you leave. But she reinvented something in her job and felt like she had made a contribution. And at the end of the day, you know, your, your job experience is the five or six people you work with and how you show up. And if you show up with, you know, willing to work hard and get the, get the hard stuff done, and you show up with an open, you know, an open mindset and a designer's curiosity, you can make any job interesting, at least for a period of time. And then knowing yourself well, you can know what the next thing 
probably you know wants to be or you can prototype your way build your way forward into the next thing but don't be afraid to work hard grit's all about working hard and that's why we're the anti-passion guys everybody oh what's my passion if i only knew my passion blah, blah, blah. well the research says that only 20 percent of the people have any identifiable single passion that's bill damon's work over at the center for the study of adolescence at stanford so eight out of ten people can't tell you their passion and it's actually the evidence shows that passions evolve after you've worked really hard at something and you realize, hey, I'm not only am I good at this, but I'm making a contribution. I think this is my thing. But you can't get there if you keep quitting every time you get bored. So I'm not saying stay in a crummy job or do things that, are, that aren't challenging. But Dave and I would reframe the passion question is like passion's not the end point or the destination. I found it, now I'm here, I'm done. Because it doesn't work that way. Even a passion will burn itself out over time. What you want to learn to do is to live with curiosity and you want to live passionately. It's not an end point. It's a way of being. Live passionately. One thing I have noticed, Bill, in my career and life path is that creating opportunities for opportunity are key inflection points. It's kind of like uh, learning to learn. Yeah. Um, my wife calls it putting yourself in harm's way, where yeah, that's like great. I like that. going out of your way to expose yourself to new ideas, new people, new perspectives. To your point, passions are not necessarily predictive of being happy in a career, building a successful career. More often than not, that's not the case. And some people call opportunity luck. You've been lucky in your career. Um, yeah. You know, in lots of great opportunities. But I wonder if there are techniques that you have seen for creating the habit of building opportunities for opportunity in your career. Absolutely. And we actually have a module in the class, it's not in the book, called Getting Good at Being Lucky. And this is fun. It's a really fun thing. You can look it up on uh, Tony Shea, who's the guy who founded Zappos. Mm-hmm did a talk, I think, over at the Stanford Biz School. There's a grainy video of it. But he used to give people a test when they were hiring people at Zappos. And the test was on a scale of 1 to 10, are you lucky? 1, 2, 3, I don't know. I'm not very lucky. Nothing ever good, good ever happens to me. 8, 9, 10, I'm really lucky. I don't know why. Good things always happen to me. Which is a weird, you actually can't use that as a way of hiring people. But he based it on a piece of research, and this was a study that was done where people were evaluated. They self-evaluated themselves on this lucky scale. And then they had were given like a 30-page front section of the New York Times. And they were told, count the number of headlines. If you get the right answer, collect $100. Now, we all know that if the psychology experimenter tells you that's the experiment, that's not the experiment. What they didn't know is that it looked like a 30-page front section of the Sunday Times, but actually it was a doctored newspaper. It was completely phony. And inside the newspaper in various little clips was a piece of text that said, if you read this, the experiment's over, collect an extra $100. And the data was people who rated themselves as unlucky most of the time, 80% of the time, read the newspaper, got the right answer, completed the test, felt really good, collected the $100. Most of the time, 80% of the time, the people who rated themselves as very lucky found the other piece of text, got to quit early, and got $200. 
And the conclusion of the psychologist is that luck isn't necessarily a, it has nothing to do with luck. It has to do with keeping yourself open to something other than just the task at hand. How do you get lucky and find a job? Well, I've had dozens of people after I tell that story say, you know what? It happened to me. I was standing in a Starbucks line and this guy came up to me and I said, hey, that's a nice uh, hat you got on there. Eli, what's uh, what's that logo? Oh yeah, so you know, I used to work at this film company. Oh really? I love film. You know? Oh yeah, you know, I, I was an underwater photographer one day. You know, and da 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 da. And before you know it, I've got an introduction to somebody to somebody, and I had my next job, and it was amazing. So you can put yourself in harm's way, and it's about being open to more than the task at hand, and keeping your peripheral vision open and your emotional intelligence which is huge in decision-making and huge in life in general and under-educated in most cases, keeping your emotional intelligence tuned in to what's going on because the opportunities that will come by putting yourself in harm's way come through conversations with other people or going to a conference that you weren't really thinking was going to be that interesting and going to that one weird talk that wasn't in the main session but was in the side session and the guy was talking about, you know, design for penguin enclosures. And you're like, I don't know. I didn't even know people designed for penguin enclosures. <laughs> and then you get to talking to this penguinologist or whatever they call themselves. And before you know it, you're working for the Museum of Natural History, doing exhibits, and it's the best job you ever had. You want to make yourself lucky. Act like lucky people do. Talk to people. Be open. Let your emotional intelligence pull you to the things that attract your heart. It's great to have options, but the best options often come in the most unexpected places from the most unexpected people. You won't meet them if you just spend your time counting the number of headlines in the newspaper. I thought one of the other really nice pieces of advice was if you're currently feeling stuck in your job, set aside time every week for reflection. Yeah. And you can kind of orient that towards two things, a savoring kind of reflection, or maybe there's an opportunity for insight. That also seems to tie closely to kind of cultivating a practice of mindfulness. Maybe you could talk about that a bit. Yes. Well, um, you're way more versed in the mindfulness thing than I am. And one of the, one of the reviews of the first book was somebody said, I really like this book and thank God they didn't talk about mindfulness because I'm so tired of that. Um, <laughs> but, but we do talk about, we do talk about reflection a lot. I mean, and basically the model in, in the book, the sort of model of changing your behavior, changing anything is first notice where you're at, like what's really going on. No bullshit. There's a sign above the loft that says you are here. We put that on the cover of every book. Uh, it's inside the dust jacket. You are here. Like design starts in reality. Where are you at? I make some observations and we give you some tools to maybe sort those observations. Like when you're at work, we have a gratefulness journal is a fantastic thing to do in general. And we have sort of a gratefulness work journal. And, you know, you look at, you know, when did I learn something new at work? Who did I help at work? And how did I make the workplace a better place? And you just notice what you notice. Hey, I didn't learn nothing this week. Hey, I didn't help anybody this week. Decide what you want to change small change. Yeah, maybe I'll help Gladys in accounting figure out how to format her spreadsheet so that the negative numbers come out red. You know, whatever. I'll just some I I know something I can help somebody. So, where am I at? What do I notice? What do I want to change? That's this process of reflection. And there's a whole lot of really interesting neuroscience around this now. You know, what we pay attention to, what we actually put brain cycles on and what that talking part of our brain is talking about all the time, 
that's kind of our reality. That's what we're aware of. That's what we're aware of what we do. If we don't like the days we're having or if we're finding ourselves bored, we need to learn to pay attention to something else because the things we're paying attention to are not engaging us. So this, this idea of noticing where you're, very simple, noticing where you're at, putting it in some kind of a framework, gratefulness, uh, energy, we've got an energy map, got a gratefulness map, got a, you know, this model, uh, maker model, like everybody makes three things, not just money, they make money, impact, and expression. So where are you on that? Once you got a little framework, you go, oh, you know, the problem is I make enough money. That's not the issue. I'm just not having any impact here. And my expression is really low because everybody wants to have some kind of creative expression. I don't care what job you're in. You need some expression. So this notion of reflection and then going back to an experience, you talked about savoring. And savoring is actually really interesting because what you're doing, savoring is like really inhabiting the experience. Like there was that conversation I had with this coworker where I really felt, you know, we, we'd been having some conflict and I really felt like we cleared it up. And what was it about that conversation that worked differently than in the past? And you get into that and you remember it. it remember it at the level where you remember the feelings, right? Because emotional intelligence is a lot about feeling. So now I've got my cognitive intelligence has reframed the, the conversation. I've remembered it precisely. My emotional intelligence has brought in all the other things that, that happened during that interchange. And now I've truly inhabited the experience again. And we know that our memories are mood congruent and are congruent with context. So when I re-savor a moment like that, I've actually embedded kind of a neural pathway that says, that really worked. You can rely on that to work again. And so these moments of savoring, you know, savoring has sort of got a positive sense to it. Reliving a traumatic experience mm -hmm. is not the same thing the problem with traumatic experiences, sometimes they can just be triggered again and again and again. A PTSD sufferer, a good friend of mine is a PTSD sufferer from, you know, from his military experience, and but has done a bunch of therapy to kind of manage it. And mindfulness is a great way to manage that because you know the, the opposite of savoring is you know, a PTSD trigger where like suddenly you're back in, you know, you're back in Vietnam and people are shooting at you when you're just walking down the street in San Francisco but your brain is hijacked and you're inside that memory and you can't get out. Savoring's the positive version of doing it in purpose to recreate a memory, but to really groove that memory in a way that then that kind of problem solving or that kind of language or that kind of situation, if it occurs again, you've developed some, some mastery of it. You know how to have the hard conversation. You know how to, how to solve the hard problem. You know how to make a bad day a good day by helping Gladys in accounting make colorful spreadsheets or, you know, whatever. I agree with you. It's related to mindfulness in the sense that in our Western culture, we're just waking up to the notion that what we pay attention to really matters. And if all we pay attention to is this noisy brain running around all the time from event to event to event to event, and we're not sorting out the feelings and we're not sorting out what's going on and we're not calming ourselves down and giving ourselves a baseline to work from, then we're, you know, then we're going to experience stress. We're going to experience overwork and maybe even burnout. Everything I say about making a bad job better, or you know, you can do any, you can, you you have more control than you think. That's all true unless you are in a burnout situation, which is just, which is a physiological and a psychological 
situation, which is a medical situation. And I'm not, you know, we, we put the, we put the Mayo Clinic burnout checklist in the book. Like if, if you can check off four or five of these 10 things, you need to stop and you need to get yourself some medical help because that's a real problem in America. People are also working themselves to death, literally to death. Or if you're in a toxic environment, you're in an environment where there's sexism, racism, ageism, um, if, you have, if you're being assaulted by an, a boss or an employer, that is unacceptable. And that is not something you can just reframe and design around. That's a, you need to get yourself out of a dangerous situation or get yourself out of an unhealthy situation as soon as you can. And unfortunately, too many workers in this COVID pandemic found themselves in situations in nursing homes and shipping centers, Amazon and other big fulfillment centers where they were forced to work and the situation, because it had changed, was no longer safe because of the way the working environment was set up. I just read a startling statistic in today's paper that 42% of healthcare workers in old age homes, in you know, rest homes and assisted living homes and and things like 42% of those workers are paid minimum wage and are on some kind of public assistance because they don't make enough money taking care of your mom or your grandma to actually support themselves. They work two or three jobs in two or three different homes because they can't get enough hours because they aren't paid enough, which is one of the reasons the viruses were spread rapidly around our nursing home economy because we just don't pay those people enough to have a decent job and a decent life. So if you're in that situation, you need other solutions than simply redesigning. Bill, in, in life and in work, momentum sort of begets momentum. And you talk about micro goals. Oftentimes we set big goals for ourselves of like, I really wanna achieve this in my career or I want to achieve this in my life. And sometimes those goals feel so big that they're almost unattainable and it's hard to start. Can you talk about how people can create momentum and movement in their life by being mindful of the size of that goal and, and set it, how they set that goal for themselves? Yeah, and the research here is really, really clear that when people set big goals, they fail. You know, the classic is it's New Year's and I'm going to do my New Year's resolution. And by March, 90% of New Year's resolutions have failed primarily because they weren't well thought through or it wasn't an actual commitment. But even in the cases where people really were committed, hey, this year I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to run a marathon. And that goal will fail every single time. And it'll fail because there's nothing you can do in the next 10 days to look anything like running a marathon. You know, hey, Eli, I looked at your phone, man, and you're not even doing 5,000 steps, which is not true because Eli has this walking desk. He does about a million <laughs> He's always walking. <laughs> a day. But, but, you know, someone said, I'm going to run a marathon. Give me your phone. Okay, I see an average of 4,800 steps a day here. You're pretty sedentary. Running a marathon is not possible yet. But what is possible? What, what could we do? With, because if you, can't, if you don't see any progress in the next five to 10 days, and then that just keeps going. You're just not, the, the research says you're just going to give up. You can have the bigger goal. I want to get in shape someday. You know, someday maybe it would be cool to run a marathon. But right now, my focus is to go from 5,000 to 10,000 steps. And to do that reliably, it takes about six weeks to establish a new, a new pattern or to get rid of an old, an old habit. So what can I do that I can see progress in the next two weeks? Hey, I hit my goal. Awesome. Now I'm going to go from 10,000 
to, you know, 15 or 20,000, which is essentially, you know, I'm going to run a 1K or a 5K and, you know, do, 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 and pretty soon now I can start to see some of the larger goals be possible. The psychology of behavior change is really clear that you will only change behaviors in small increments. David Kelly talks about it in his book. He talks about guided mastery, the work of Albert Bandura on changing phobias. And then just recently, B.J. Fogg, who's a colleague at Stanford, has written a book called Tiny Habits. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the behavior change model. He's evolved through research of small incremental changes add up to really big changes. They really do. I mean, you can make big changes in your life. You can end up running marathons. You can lose 100 pounds. You can change your job, change your life. It's possible, but it doesn't happen. It rarely happens where you have the big epiphany and then suddenly it all flips. It happens through grit. <laughs> it happens through the designer's mindset of curiosity and a collaboration, you know, bias to action and, and radical collaboration with others because others will have to help you on this journey of your change. And it happens in small increments. Our version of BJ's tiny habits is set the bar low, set the bar low and clear it, you know, lather, rinse, repeat, do that over and over and over again, but find things that are available that you can do, that you can do this week. And if you make a habit of changing in small increments, you can change anything, literally anything in your life. Incidentally, Dave Ramsey, and there are a lot of financial advisors out there that follow this exact same psychology where you start with these tiny little things. If you're, you've got a big financial goal to pay off a mortgage or get out of debt or something like that, that you start with these tiny little things and get that momentum. Even if the math isn't there, that this is the, the thing you should pay off first, it's that same momentum that helps you get the dopamine hit that keeps you going. Absolutely. Well, you know, had I, had I paid any attention to all those things when I was 22 and got my very first real job at Kenner Products in Cincinnati, Ohio, I flew to Cincinnati. I rented a, I rented a Victorian house for $190 a month. I was making $19,000 a year. If I had done what all the advisors I had at the time told me, take 10% of your salary and put it in the bank every week. Every time you get a paycheck, put 10% in the bank, pay yourself first, pay everybody else after that. Well, I could have retired a long time ago. <laughs> and there is, a, there is the FIRE movement. It's the first something to retire early. First, financial independence, retire early. Yeah, financial early. independence, retire early. FIRE movement, where a lot of people in their you know, 20s and 30s are doing a rigorous savings programs. The other thing I tell my students is live like a student for five years. After you get that first job, you don't need a car. You don't need a fancy apartment. You don't need anything. Live like a student for five years. Get five of your friends, rent a two-bedroom apartment in San Francisco, split the rent. Don't go out to expensive places. Save all your money because by the time mortgages and kids and everything else comes, it gets a lot harder. It's hard. The nice part about money is you get some, like you say, you get that dopamine hit. You look in your bank account and you go, hey, there's more money here than there was last time. That's pretty cool. You know, and then every year it gets a little bigger, it gets a little bigger. I don't know about the stock market lately. That's been a little bit scary, <laughs> but um, we don't believe you can plan your life because life is uncertain and things happen. <laughs> Look at the last six months. But, um, but you can plan your finances, right? You can plan your retirement to some extent. That's, that's something that accumulates over time. And the, the brilliance of compound interest is amazing. 
And just as a as an example of, I was also reading today because I'm doing a lot of reading about the uh, inequities in America right now, particularly versus black lives. Black people are half as likely to own a home, half as likely to have money to leave to their children, half as likely to be able to accumulate money and have you know bank accounts and savings accounts. So there's a persistent underclass status because they're not accumulating capital. I have a friend who was a real estate agent in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s. He's older now, he's retired. But he knew all the secret codes people put on mortgage applications to prevent black people from owning homes in white neighborhoods. Red and he fought hard against that. But if you never accumulate assets, you never accumulate capital, you never change the game for your kids. And there's been a systemic disenfranchising of black families in America. And you know that's gotta stop. Because if the game's rigged, and even if you try hard and save hard, you can't get there. That's just not okay. Bill, you talk, uh, we were talking just a minute ago about a situation where you have to quit. And, and if it's a situation where you're, where you're being abused in some way, you might not have very many options other than to just quit. But if it's a situation that's tolerable, at least for the short term, there's a good way and probably several bad ways to go about it. I mean, bad way burn your bridges, you know, do a Jerry Maguire and say, who's coming with me <laughs> on the way out the door. <laughs> but maybe you could talk a little bit about the good, good ways to, to quit. Yeah. You know, we, we have a thing we call generative quitting and I've actually done this and Dave's done this and this doesn't come from research, just came from our own experience. If it's true that the most valuable thing you have at work isn't your paycheck, it's your social network. Then when it comes time to leave and it will come time to leave, you'll decide, Hey, I just, I want to, I want to change or, or I have to change where, you know, my wife got a job in Texas and we're moving to Austin. You want to quit. Well, you want to quit generally. And we say there's four steps. First of all, you want to leave the campsite better than you found it. Clean up all the messes, those projects that weren't done, those reports that aren't done, get them done, wrap it up so that whoever comes behind you gets a chance, you know, to start well. You generally know you're going to leave a company a few months before you announce it to everybody. So this is a perfect time to make sure you've revved up your network, you've closed up, you know, your relationships with people. Hey, nobody's going to say, "I know you've been having lots of lunches with lots of folks. What's going on?" It's like, "No, I'm just a social person. I like to, I like to, you know, check in with the people I work with." So, talk to that person in marketing. Talk to that person in finance. Talk to that person in manufacturing or the other person. You know, people who've been useful in your network at work, just connect in and make sure you've got that network kind of well identified. Dave did this, which I think is wonderful. Write a job description of the actual job and leave it for the person who's going to replace you. Like, this is what they tell you the job is. This is what the job really is. And he says he gets calls from people even today going, you know, I thought it was kind of weird when you called me and you said, I got this thing for you and you sent me this 30 page, you know, manual about how to do my job, but it turned out you nailed it, dude. Thank you so much. And that's another way to build a network. And then, you know, you exit. Well, you do not praise the new job in the book. We say, make sure, you know, you look people in the eye and shake their hand and thank you for the time that you had with them. That might not be what happens going forward, but, but definitely leave the company on a high note because well, I tell you, every job I've ever gotten, I've gotten from a friend that I worked with in some company someplace, and particularly in, a, in an active, kind of exciting economy like Silicon Valley, all the people I know at Apple are now working in 10 other companies. 
their senior vice presidents at Amazon or Instagram or Snapchat. Those companies didn't even exist when I was at Apple. There's a time before Amazon existed, you know. And it was that network of people that, that you know, split up or they go to a startup or then the startup, you know, gets huge and then, and then everybody leaves and goes to another startup. If you believe that work is made enjoyable and profitable and, and uh, engaging because it's the people you work with, not the jobs you have, then quitting well is all about supporting that infrastructure. Leave the campsite better than you found it. Connect with your network at work. Leave well and help the person who comes behind you succeed. It's also just kind of being kind <laughs> or maybe, you know, Golden rules, golden rule stuff. Yeah, being an adult, even for people who are are being forced. You know, there's they let off three thousand people at uh, Uber and two thousand people or twenty five hundred people at Lyft, and that's just the first round. I'm sure they'll have to shed thousands more. And I have been, you know, in the situation both laid off from a company that was closing which is not as bad as the situation where I'm a boss and I have to pick the people we're going to lay off, which is a horrible thing to have to do. Uh, but that happens very quickly. You know, you get a, you know, you're called into a big meeting. They say, Hey, we're having this reduction in force. The guards will be uh, escorting people out of the building. If you're here after three o'clock, uh, you have to all leave through the front door and we're going to check what you've got in your box. And you li literally have a couple hours to pack up your office and go home. But even in that, situation and as angry and as hurt as you might be you remember there's all these other people the people who stay behind with survivor's guilt the people who are leaving by the way statistically if your company is going to have layoffs you want to be in the first wave not the last wave because <laughs> there's still jobs available in the first wave by the time they get to the third or fourth cut and no jobs anywhere but there's still a time to show your humanness, to show your compassion to others, to help them pack their box, to help them leave the building with dignity. They'll remember that forever. I've done a startup. It got purchased by a larger company. We thought it was going to be great. It didn't turn out to be great at all. And we knew the larger company was going to have massive layoffs and that we would probably be cut because we were just a little, a little thing they'd purchased. And so I kind of knew it was coming the week before I said, okay, we're documenting everything we've done. Get in the photo the room. We're taking pictures of everything. They said, why? I said, just, we're going to document everything. This is the week of documentation. Everybody take all the pictures of everything we've done. We, we set up professional lighting and cameras. We took pictures of all the, all the work we had done that hadn't been in the market yet. I said, and now everybody is going to do you know, this other thing where we document everything that's coming up, and I want all the source code you know, on, the, on the server, blah, blah, blah. And while they were doing that, I wrote everyone a glowing letter of recommendation. And on the Friday when we came in and everybody was laid off, I said, here's a disc with your portfolio on it. As far as I'm concerned, you can show anybody anything that's on this disc. You have my permission. And here's your letter of recommendation. Those people still remember that. That's amazing. Bill, as we wrap up here, are there any parting thoughts for listeners of the show who may be part of the roughly 20% of the United States and who knows how many unemployed globally in this pandemic that might help them rethink their job search, 
and the possibilities of what could happen right now because it, you know, there could be a silver lining. There could be a different way of looking at the situation. You have a choice between optimism and pessimism. And everybody's got, you know, their own personality and, and their set point on that. But it's not useful to dwell on what you can't do. And you can't maybe get that job back if the job is gone or if the company is failing. And maybe in the new, quote, new normal, whatever that means, it won't be normal. There won't be uh, restaurants the way they were or hotels the way they were or something. So we don't know. We're actually kind of in this transition period where we don't know what's coming. We're kind of in a neutral zone between what was in the past and what's in the future. So a logical response is to be as positive as you can be, to look for the new opportunities. Wherever there's a dislocation, there's new opportunity. To be as flexible as you can in your thinking, as gritty as you can in your thinking. But I'm, I'm going to have to probably work hard to find the next job to be flexible in that it probably, for a while, it won't be like the job I had. And if you're in one of the industries that's been, that's been devastated by this, which by the way, includes higher education. But if you've been in the hospitality industry, transportation industry, you know, the food industry, uh, restaurant industry, I think waiting for, for it to come back and be like it was, unless you got five years of salary in the bank, that doesn't make any sense. And so I think you got to get through the grieving process of letting go of what you can't have. And that's a process and you know it takes a time takes some time. But the the last part of the grieving cycle is acceptance. Okay, I can't have what I used to have. Now I need to move on. And once you get to accept, you're ready to redesign. And you can redesign because you still have you're still a skillful person, but the skills may not be the industry you were skilled in may not be available. So you're going to have to do something different. And you might have to do something really different in the short term because there's a mortgage to pay, there's kids to feed, you know, you got to buy the shoes. So I think everybody's going to scramble. Everybody's going to have to be a little bit gritty. And then we're going to look for opportunities as things uh, come back online where there'll be brand new things that people want to do. You know, one of our students, Evan Spiegel, started the company Snap. And I was talking to him the other day, and he said, you know, engagement on social media is off the charts right now because people want to talk. They want to talk about their experience. They want to talk about what's going on. They want to connect with their friends, and this is the only way to do it. And so, you know, let's look at the places where it's not just a new normal. It's a whole new way of working. I mean, I'm sure at Stanford we will continue to do classes online now forever not because we have to anymore, but because in some cases it's the best way to do it. And it'll reach the most students with the highest impact. I think we'll redefine what the boundaries of a university are. I think we'll redefine a lot of things and that's going to upset some business models, but it's going to create brand new ones. And so get gritty, get curious, be as flexible as you can be. And you may end up taking an interim solution. What I've talked to a lot of my students about is like, Hey, if there's not a full-time job, take an internship. If it's not an internship, offer your skills for free. You're not doing anything anyway, so to find a project, do it for a company, put it in your portfolio. It's better than, you know, binge watching Game of Thrones again. <laughs> so get out and do something, hopefully for money. But if that doesn't work, do something 
to build your curiosity, build your skills, and demonstrate your grit. And frankly, you know, if that includes a job that isn't the perfect job, that's okay. My grandfather came to this country in 1932 because he was a German immigrant. Um, actually, he brought his, he, he came first and then he made enough money to bring his wife and my mom from Germany in 1932 because he didn't think uh, Hitler was elected chancellor in 32. He didn't think that was going to go very well. But when he came to America, like many immigrants, he spoke no English. He had no skills. He had never gone even to high school for reasons that make no sense. He ended up in Palo Alto, California, across the street from the Stanford University, uh, where I, I, I grew up part of my life, and um, got a job at the sewage plant, sewage treatment plant, essentially shoveling shit. There's no other way to say it. He shoveled shit from one tank to another for 50 cents a day. And that put a roof over his family's head and that allowed my, my mom and her brother to go to Palo Alto schools. And he worked that job for most of his life, eventually doing more interesting things. But he did whatever it took. I just sent out a thing to the students and I ended it with the Winston Churchill quote. And I think it's from a World War II speech. But he said, Sometimes it's not enough to do your best. Sometimes you need to do what's required. So I just will leave people with that. Sometimes you're just going to have to do what you have to do. These are really tough times, exacerbated now by the race tensions and riots in this country, which are completely understandable. Go look at Martin Luther King's speech at Stanford, 1967, The Other America. He talks about this. We're right back where we started. That was 53 years ago. But it's going to be tough, and it's going to be weird for the next couple of years. So you're going to have to do what you have to do. Sometimes you have to do what's required. That's a great place to leave it, Bill. Thanks so much for being on the Design Better podcast. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me again. <laughs>